Welcome back. Um, as a trigger warning, please remember that this week's content centers on some sensitive material, as we'll focus mainly on sexual assault and domestic violence crimes. And these crimes are highly prevalent, um, and they're highly prevalent in that they impact one in four to one in five women for each. So I know that in a class this size that it's likely that we have survivors of both of these crimes. So be cognizant of this and also learn about these crimes throughout this week so that you have a better understanding of the realities of this crime and victimization. Okay, so let's start digging in. We'll start with content about sex offenses. And first things first, if you want to work in law enforcement or in the legal sector of the criminal justice system, you need to be cognizant of the fact that you will have to deal with these types of cases. If you um, are a police officer and you get called for a rape call, you have to go and you have to be able to help deal with it. Or if you're an assistant district attorney working in the sex crimes unit, you have to prosecute these types of cases. So again, be mindful of this type of requirement for these fields. And second, you have to be okay and comfortable using anatomically correct language for these crimes. Um, this is how you have to ask questions to get answers about the crime. So make sure that you're ready for this as the terms vagina, penis, anus, penetration, etc., will be commonly used words. Okay, now we can really start digging in. First, let's talk about the history behind sex crimes. So let's talk about rape and sodomy. Rape has um, historical origins as a crime and is in our major kind of three violent mala inse types of crimes with rape, murder, and robbery. And at common law, rape was only held to be penetration with a, a penis into a vagina. So it was a highly gendered crime that assumed only females could be victimized. And at common law definition, it required force by the perpetrator. So example, holding somebody down. It required resistance by the victim. So an example of, you know, somebody had to try to get away, they had to scratch somebody, they had to show a lack of consent with more, more than just words, basically. And it required corroborating evidence, not just the statements from the victim, but we needed tangible based evidence to show the crime occurred. And remember, this was pre-DNA, so this must have been even more challenging than it is now. Also, historically, the law held that a man couldn't rape his wife. So remember, women were property at different points in time in our history. And lastly, in a historical context, rape was used um, or used to be a capital offense, meaning we could give a death sentence for this crime. Now, what about sodomy? Common law sodomy laws define sodomy as penetration of the male anus by a man. So again, it was gendered and consent didn't matter. Even at common law, sodomy was criminalized as a way to socially control behaviors that were deemed quote unquote wrong. So contemporary changes to these sex crime statutes really began through the 1970s and continue today. The marital rape exception was removed, so now a person can be charged with raping their spouse. The requirement for extreme resistance has been changed, um, and so no really does mean no, and you don't have to fight someone off to prove that. And the requirement of corroborating evidence has been lessened more, more than anything. We can now use just statements. Well, kind of. Most of those cases that do not have corroborating evidence do not end up successfully prosecuted, though. So yes, we changed the requirement, but we didn't really in practicality. And lastly, rape is no longer a capital crime per Coker v. Georgia in 1977, as it was ruled that capital punishment for rape violated the Eighth Amendment protection against cruel and unusual punishment. Although interestingly, some states still have it on their books. Remember, we don't tend to get rid of many statutes. However, any states that have that in their, on their books, they can't actually use it. And in addition, sodomy laws were updated to be gender neutral and to finally allow for consent. The landmark case of Lawrence v. Texas in 2003 is what challenged consensual sodomy laws as a privacy issue. And because of this constitutional challenge, sodomy laws can no longer allow charging for consensual acts. And again, this change only came about 17 years ago. 
One other thing to note when talking about this whole old law versus new law issue is that while we have made some substantial changes through the 1970s and even into 2003 with Lawrence v. Texas, it actually took us until 2012 to change up a few important details on how we define rape within the Uniform Crime Reports. And that's that data that you looked at last week for our homicide content. So for rape, the old definition per the UCR was forcible rape, and the term forcible in this was problematic in the first place, as rape is inherently a violent crime. And the definition of it was the carnal knowledge of a female forcibly and against her will. And carnal knowledge essentially equals sexual intercourse. So the pro what problems do you see in this definition? Well, it was gendered, and it heavily relied on the term force still. So in 2012, the UCR definition was changed, and it now reads penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without consent of the victim. So it's much more gender inclusive and relies more on consent than on force. And I point this definition change out so that you can now look at the UCR data and understand why there are two categories for rape. One says legacy definition, and that's the old definition. And the other says revised definition, and that's the new one. Um, so again, that's why the UCR data looks the way that it does in the charts and why you don't see anything in the category for revised definition until 2013. So I hope that clarifies things for those who elect to complete your discussion on this content by using this data. Okay, so now let's discuss rape as a crime and define our elements. Rape requires a criminal act, attendant circumstances that show that the act is indeed criminal. It requires intent, causation, and harm. So what's the criminal act for rape? In most statutes, it's the sexual penetration with force or threat of force, an emphasis on the latter, as actual force is not required, only the threat of force in most statutes. Additionally, there is an attendant circumstance. Remember, this just means it's an additional circumstance that's necessary. And that the required one for this crime is lack of consent. Because sexual penetration by itself is not always a crime. The lack of consent is what makes it criminal. Now, what about intent? This is a crime that only requires general intent, so knowingly. However, the strict liability crime of statutory rape, so sex with somebody underage is what that crime is, and in California, the age of consent is 18, but this requires no intent, as the victim cannot consent due to age anyway. Additionally, causation is required, and the causation is always that the act must lead to the harm, and the harm for this crime is the penetration itself. And one thing to note is that statutes tend to be very specific in the fact that ejaculation is not required. All that's required is any bit of penetration for harm. So there are different types of rape and sex crimes, but all follow these same general elements typically. But let's dig into the most prevalent within the content this week, which was acquaintance rape. So most victims actually know their offender. Nine of 10 victims know their offender. So the crime of rape is rarely about strangers. And how often does this crime occur in society? Well, the UCR data only shows about 140,000 rapes reported last year. We know that reporting of this type of crime is extremely low. And so organizations such as RAIN and the National Sexual Violence Resource Center estimate that one in five women experience this crime at some point in their lives. And about 80% of these crimes occur before the age of 25. And the prime age range for this is typically from 18 to 25. And I say women when I'm explaining most of this because the crime is more likely to occur with women because uh, women represent about 90% of victims, but men are also victims and may report at even lower rates. So reporting in general for this crime is low. Most research indicates that only about 30 or 30% of rapes are reported to the police, and really it may be even lower than that. And of those reported to the police, only about 50% result in an arrest. 
And if an arrest is made, there's only about an 80% chance that the DA's office will accept and prosecute. And if there's prosecution, there's only about a 58% chance of conviction. And if there's a felony conviction, there's only about a 70% chance that the person will spend any time in jail or prison. So even of those rapes reported to the police, only about 16% serve time. And factoring in the fact that most rapes go unreported, only about 6% of rapists will ever spend a day incarcerated. So 15 of 16 rapists walk free. So let that sink in and let it take you back to our first week of this class or first few weeks of the class and about the role of justice in our criminal justice system. So why is reporting so low and why don't police and prosecution take more um, take action more frequently? And for that, you need to look at rape myths. Many times it is wrongfully assumed that the only or that only females can be victims. So males may underreport for this reason. Additionally, it's assumed that if someone is raped, they will immediately seek police assistance. So victims who report later, say weeks, months, years later, are frequently dismissed as making it up. And many times rape is construed incorrectly to be violent and completed by strangers. So many may be unaware that what happened to them was indeed rape and they may not report it. Additionally, considering most do know their attacker, they may not report due to fear of damaging family or friend relationships as well. And it's also assumed that one must fight back. So if a victim doesn't fight back, they might not report it. And if they do, they might be questioned about why they didn't. Rape is also incorrectly construed to be a crime of sex when it's really about power. And on that note, another myth is that if the person enjoyed it and experienced arousal, then it couldn't be rape. But it can because bodies sometimes do things outside of what the mind consents to. And on that note, consent is typically misunderstood. One can give consent at one point and then retract consent at any time. Victims may be made to feel that because they consented to an initial act that they then had to continue and they were not able to um, retract that consent. And there are also extremely prevalent myths about false reporting, and this just isn't true. Most research indicates that less than 2% of reported cases are substantiated to be false. It's rare that someone would want to put themselves through the trauma of this process for a false report. And there are also myths about the individual asking for it, based upon a tire worn, being out late, being out drinking, etc. The whole, well, if she didn't dress like that, if she didn't drink so much, if she wasn't walking alone at night, he wouldn't have raped her, um, which equates to victim blaming. And there are also myths about prior sexual history in general and or with the rapist themselves that make it so that the victim will get questioned about whether or not they truly didn't consent. So that's kind of a broad overview of some rape myths, and you can read about all of them in the resources this week. So educate yourself so that you know the reality. So those last few um, myths that led us into rape shield laws, as these laws protect victims so that irrelevant information cannot be introduced to court. These typically make it so that defense attorneys cannot introduce information about past sexual history, what they were wearing, etc. And as we went over with the myths, it's extremely important for these cases, as few even get reported in the first place. So hopefully this allows for more privacy and for future victims to feel that they can come forward without victim blaming. And the last thing for sex crimes, um, sex offender registries. Y'all have probably heard of Megan's Law that created sex offender registries in the 1990s. And while these were a good idea in theory, the idea is that we track offenders and let people know where they live so that they cannot commit future crimes because we're watching out for it. However, go back to the data about this type of crime. Most offenders know their victim. So a registry where you look up strangers who move in around you actually does very little. Again, nine of 10 victims know their assailant, so registries don't do much. Also, few of these crimes are reported, so many individuals are not on the registry in the first place. So while I know you want to feel safe with these registries, know that it's a false sense of safety. 
And really, statistically, you're more likely to be victimized within your own family and social circle, as scary as that sounds. All right, next up, assault and battery. What are these two crimes? Most mix these up, so let's make sure we clarify. Assault is the attempt or threat to harm or injure someone, while battery is the actual act causing the physical harm or injury. So to put this in another way, assault is what causes the victim to apprehend imminent physical harm, while battery is the physical harm. So if the victim has not actually been touched, but only threatened or someone attempted to say touch them, then the crime is only assault. And if they are touched in a way to cause harm or injury, it's a battery. So let's go over the elements of battery first, as this is the act that causes the physical harm. And I noticed that most assume this is what we call assault, but remember, it's not. So for battery, the criminal act is the unlawful physical contact. The attendant circumstance is that the act is not consensual, because remember, an act of physical contact can be consensual in many instances. And the intent can be any of the four in the model penal code, but most are typically either specific, which is purposely, or general intent, which is knowingly. And the causation is always that the act must cause the harm, and the harm is the bad or in battery is the offensive contact. And some statutes also require injury. Assault, on the other hand, has different elements, and it can be broken down into two categories. So there's attempted battery assault or threatened battery assault. So for attempted battery assault, the act is the act that attempts to hurt someone. So example, throwing a punch but not actually hitting somebody. And the intent is specific um, intent with purposely. They don't have causation or harm within this crime, though. Now, threatened battery assault is a little different, though. The act is the threat of harm. Now, words aren't enough. You need something like a threatening gesture, so something like a raised fist, let's say. And the intent, again, is specific, so purposely. And threatened battery assault does have causation and harm. And the causation is always that the act causes harm, and the harm for this crime is the fear of injury. So again, assault and battery are frequently misunderstood, so hopefully you now understand the difference. Let's now take this to domestic violence, as domestic violence is essentially a specific type of battery. And domestic violence is common. Most research indicates that roughly one in four women experience domestic violence at some point. And estimates show that domestic violence accounts for about 15% of violent crime in the United States. So it's prevalent. However, like rape, it also comes with many myths. First, people tend to assume that it's not common. But the data I just referenced tells you a very different story. It's also assumed that it um, to be gendered, where only females can be the victims. And again, it's false. While estimates show that about 85% of victims are female, men are also victimized by this crime and, again, report at even lower levels. It is also incorrectly assumed that domestic violence is a low-income family problem. However, this crime reaches across socioeconomic barriers. It's just that wealthy individuals have more resources available and do not call the police as often to deal with this crime, even though it happens just as frequently. It's also assumed that those who are the perpetrators of domestic violence are violent in all of their relationships, which is again false. Someone can abuse, say, their spouse and still have friends and seem like a nice person. Additionally, while domestic violence is associated with drugs and alcohol abuse, substance abuse does not cause domestic violence. Not all abusers drink or use, and not all who drink or use abuse. It's also sadly assumed that the kids will be fine if they grow up watching or listening to domestic violence as long as they are not being victimized, and that it's worth staying in an abusive relationship so that the kids get a two-parent household. But research shows that this is not a good idea as witnessing this type of violence as a child is linked to many traumas in adulthood. Additionally, children who grew up in abusive homes are more likely to either per perpetrate violence in their own relationships later or to be the victims of it in their relationships. 
So there are some of the myths for domestic violence. Again, check out the extra resources for even more realities. One last thing to mention with domestic violence is that it wasn't necessarily really even viewed as a criminal issue until about the 1980s. It was essentially viewed as a private matter handled at home prior to this. Police would occasionally be called, but they frequently did nothing to intervene. However, now police have policies that guide their arrest powers. States typically require one of three things, either mandatory arrest, um, pro-arrest policies, or full discretion left to the officers. And while mandatory arrest sounds great at face value, it leads to many instances where both parties are arrested, especially because in a lot of domestic violence calls, there may be two aggressors. But who is the main one? That typically is the question. But this then means that we end up with victims that get arrested. So it's not a great way to solve domestic violence issues because it creates a record for victims and it decreases their odds of calling the police for help in the future. Full discretion to officers also isn't great because they don't necessarily arrest when they need to, thus they may leave people in violent situations. Pro-arrest policies are the best here. So if an officer has probable cause, they're encouraged to arrest. But some agencies do take this too far and mandate arrest with probable cause, and again, not always our best move. All right, lastly, let's talk a little bit about stalking. So stalking is essentially an unwanted or repeated surveillance of a person. And stalking happens to a sizable amount of the population. Research has found that about 1 in 12 women have experienced stalking and about 1 in 45 men have as well. And cyber stalking is a more recent issue with even more being impacted. So let's dig into this as a crime, though. The criminal act element required for stalking includes any course of conduct that credibly threatens the victim's safety including following, harassing, approaching, pursuing, threatening, etc. But it has to occur on more than one occasion. Um, the intent within this crime is specific intent, so purposely. The causation is always that the act must cause the harm, and the harm in this case is the victim fear. And that fear has to be objective and subjective. All right, that's a lot to take in. Learn something this week. Recognize myths about all of these crimes and learn about the realities. And as always, share the information with others. Also, for those who have experienced any of these crimes or know of others who have or who would like resources, please feel free to contact me and I can direct you to local, state, and national resources for all of these things. All right, until next time.